0: Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Hannah Arendt. Uh, Hannah Arendt was a uh, philosopher in the 20th century, early 20th century to the mid-20th century, uh, who actually didn't want to be classified as a philosopher. Um, She was uh, Jewish, living in Germany, in college in Germany, uh, late 20s, early 30s, as the Nazis were coming to power, Um, she was a actual student of Martin Heidegger, um, also knew, she basically knew all of the big philosophers and intellectuals of Germany because of where she went to school and the circle she moved in. Um, the thing that, uh, was a, you know, kind of turned her away from being a, claiming the title of philosopher, I think, was her experiences in Germany in pre-World War II and then you know with what happened during World War II. Uh, she was Jewish. Um, her uh, professor was Martin Heidegger who we've talked about in an earlier episode um, and they ended up for a time being lovers. Uh, Heidegger as we talked about in the episode with an Heidegger uh, also joined the Nazi party for a while. So Heidegger is one of these strange people that he joins the Nazi party, but at the same time he had had a lover who was Jewish, and his uh, basically mentor, the one that he uh, saw himself taking over for, uh, Edmund Husserl, was also Jewish. So there gets to be a lot of complicated interrelations in this, and a lot of this works its way into the ideas of Arendt. Um, she doesn't want to see herself as a philosopher. She doesn't classify that because she feels philosophers are too much removed from the real world. Uh, she referred to think of herself as a political theorist, someone who actually looked at the real conditions of the world and then tried to draw conclusions from there. So in a lot of ways she would fall under somewhat of being a uh, a more of an empiricist, but also somewhat more actually of being a little bit like the pragmatist, although she never really has any connection to that school. I often see her as much closer to the pragmatist than I see her as being to the phenomenologist and the existentialist, which is actually what her background was. Um, but again, she took issue with it because she saw that You know, these philosophers were coming from these idealized places and, you know, building these philosophies on perfect ideas, and it wasn't really matching with the world. And she felt, you know, if you're going to think about political theory, you need to really think about, well, how does this actually play out? Not just, you know, these are beautiful ideas, I'm going to run with it, I'm going to build something on it you know, how do those ideas actually play out in the real world? And this is part of why I see her as being more like the pragmatist, because remember when we've talked about the pragmatist, we've talked about, you know, their main measure of things was, well, how does it work in reality? If it doesn't have an influence or have an impact on reality, if it isn't measurable in reality, then it's not something even worth talking about. You know, it's the outcome, it's the uh, way that it plays out in the real world. So in a lot of ways, I, I kind of, I push her more towards being a pragmatist, um, but she is uh, herself considered, a, she considered herself a theorist, not a philosopher. And this is part of why she is not studied as much as other philosophers. And I say part because I think the other part is um, philosophy has been notoriously bad when it comes to uh, only wanting to talk about the male philosophers, about kind of pushing the female philosophers off as being, well, these are more literary figures or these are more, you know, social sciences or political science. They, they kind of, it, it's, it's been in a lot of ways sort of a good old boys club. Uh, you can even see this with Simone de Beauvoir. You know, she always seemed to have to play, at least in, you know, uh, the spotlight, second to Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, But, you know, her ideas were a huge uh, part of his ideas. In fact, there's a lot of people who have made the argument that his ideas are really reworkings of a lot of the things she did. And I want to focus in on uh, one one essay in particular, on Hannah Arendt and that essay is The Perplexities of the Rights of Man. This is one of the ways where you can see she's not quite like a philosopher because she takes something that is a philosophical politically philosophical idea like the inalienable rights of man but then she looks at it from the perspective of okay is this something even that can be done? Is this something that is realistic? And in her essay, she starts out kind of going back to, you know, the end of the 18th century as the turning point in history. It meant nothing more or less than, uh, from then on, man and not God's command were the customs of history, should be the source of laws. Um, it She sees it as a major turning point in the, the foundation of people's rights. And she talks about the fact that You know, we move away from our rights being guaranteed by, you know, all being equal under God um, or even all being equal or, I shouldn't say equal, but I should say uh, given our rights according to the feudal system to now we say, no, all humans have these inalienable rights. And they base them on the idea that these are things that are just naturally every human's right. Well, the problem she sees and the problem that history has shown has been the problem with enforcement. Um, People who are part of powerful countries that are, you know, worried about guaranteeing people's rights do seem to have a lot of rights. Um, People who are part of countries that are more authoritarian seem to have almost no rights. Um, But where she focuses even more than that are on what she calls kind of the stateless people, the people who have been kind of cast out of society, the exiles. And she talks about how this is the real test of this idea of, you know, these being inalienable rights. And I think this is a pretty good test to put it to, because if you, you know, believe that these are inalienable rights and you have no ability to take these away from people, well, the people that you would want to see if this holds true for are the people that have few or no protections, and so she she partially talks about um, this in general, and she also talks about it in relationship to the Jews moving into the '30s and then moving towards the Holocaust. And one of the things that the uh, she talks about with the laws, where you know, once the Jews lost kind of the identity of being Germans, uh, when they started to pass the uh, the laws, they became second-class citizens, and then from there they lost even more identity because they were just pushed into kind of massive faceless ghettos where everybody's just kind of the same. Where they've stripped away all of their you know ranks that they had obtained in society. They've stripped away any uh, you know, identity that these people are also German. And one of the things that if, if you haven't studied much about the Holocaust um, in in Germany, uh, being Jewish, you didn't even have to be a uh, a practicing Jew to be somebody who would end up in the ghetto, to be somebody who would end up in the concentration camp. In fact, you could be someone who has been your parents converted to Christianity, and you were a Christian as well, but you had at least one of your paternal grandparents who was Jewish. Um, just that bloodline was enough to uh, exclude you from being considered a German. It made you a Jew, even if you had been living as a Christian you know, in German society uh, for a couple of generations. So this stripping away wasn't just a stripping away of, you know, people who were, uh, I guess you would call them practicing Jews, people who were, you know, Hasidic Jews or even just, you know, regularly went to the synagogue. Um, This applied to people who had even converted. So this was a stripping away of all of their identity, a pushing them into the ghetto. And then when you get them there, uh, Germany was kind of testing the waters to see, you know, what what can we get away with? How much can we get away with? And they started to realize that the less um, identity, political identity these people had as part of, you know, being Germans or, you know, of a particular nation, um, the less the international community seemed to do about it, the less the international community seemed to care about it. And they realize that the more you strip people of their national identity, the easier it is to do whatever you want. By the time you get to the concentration camps, they've even stripped them of their clothing. They've put them all in the same, you know, they've dressed them all the same. They've tattooed numbers on them and used that instead of their names. So they, step by step, move them out of uh, humanity, move them out of being seen as, you know, part of the human race. And this is where Arendt sees the problems with the idea of humans having inalienable rights. Because it seems we don't actually have those unless we're part of some nation or have some identity that is strong enough that can enforce those rights. Because once we're kind of outcast, then we don't have any. And you don't even have to you know, think that this is something that is contained just back then. You know, you can see this with uh, homeless people, and she even talks about people becoming homeless. One of the things that people often lose first, she said, was their home, you know, their sense of place. And once you're cut loose from your sense of place, you are one more step outside of being considered part of that nation um, as being considered someone with rights. And if you don't believe this is true, just take a look in, in the United States in particular how the homeless are often treated. Um, they're often, you know, moved around, uh, kicked out of wherever they are just because they're seen as a nuisance. They're not even viewed as being human beings. It's almost like they're viewed and treated as being, uh, you know, some invasive species of species of animal that has to be moved along and you know, kept under control, and you want to keep them out of sight, you don't want them being seen. And again, if you think this is something that I'm making up out of nowhere, um, several years ago, Detroit hosted the Super Bowl, and the mayor at the time, uh, Kwame Kilpatrick, uh, didn't want everybody coming to Detroit to see the Super Bowl, and seeing all the homeless people that were living under the, you know, under the overpasses on the expressway. They didn't want them seeing them as they came in and out of town on the main thoroughfares. So one of the things that they did, uh, the mayor and his, uh, his uh, I guess you'd call him gang, because at this point I don't really consider them a legitimate government with, after what they did to these people. They threw them a Super Bowl party. They said, hey, come to the Super Bowl party and You know, you can get warm and we'll feed you and we'll give you something to drink and you can watch the Super Bowl and have a good time. Well, as soon as they cleared them all out to go to this, they sent in crews to basically throw away all of their stuff. To, you know, throw it into dumpsters and get rid of it. So now you have people, when they come out of this, not only are they still homeless, uh, but now they don't even have what few things they've managed to gather together their extra clothes, their sleeping bags, their tents, whatever they happened to have that they didn't carry with them to the Super Bowl party was just thrown away. And, you know, if if you, you know, a a lot of people will shrug shrug their shoulders and say, well, so what? But put yourself in that place and think about the fact if, you know, you were invited somewhere and they said, hey, come, you know, "come, we're going to throw this. You know party for your neighborhood everybody in the neighborhood come to this party and you go to this party and then when you come home your homes have been bulldozed and they're gone and now you have nothing left and there was no recourse for these people there was no major outcry there was a few complaints that were lodged here and there and a few news outlets and a few editorials but for the most part it was just treated as this is horrible and then we move on to the next thing. And so when you you look at these things that she's saying, how these rights are not really um, enforceable, you really see that there is a pattern that this is true. This isn't something that is just as an extreme, you know, event as the Holocaust. We still see this in contemporary society today. You know, another example of this are, you know, people that are kind of been forced out of their own countries, either because of poverty or because they belong to the wrong political party and that political party lost power. And so they're exiled and they're sent to, you know, as refugees or it's a natural disaster. And, you know, if if these people had real inalienable rights, then other countries would just take them in. They would help them get back on their feet and they would be you know given the same thing that the, the same kind of treatment that people would get if let's say you're in a wealthy neighborhood and a you know wildfires destroy your home the government comes in the insurance companies come in they give you money so that you can rebuild and get back on your feet um you see this very different treatment of these people who are considered stateless in fact they're often just lab- labeled as illegals and, and throwing that term on someone really, you know, tells you, well, if you have, how, how can you be illegal if people have inalienable rights? Um, it, it's a contradiction because being illegal implies, no, you don't have any rights. Um, you, you have the right to move along and go somewhere else. And the problem is these are not people of means. These are not people of any with anywhere to go. And so you know a lot of what she talked about, um, not only is relevant during the time that this essay comes out, which is you know after the after World War II and into the fifties, um, it's it's still just as relevant today, and actually becoming even more so. In fact, even in the end of the essay, one of the things that she warns about is that you know we have these nation states uh, that are contrary to each other that have differing political ideologies, but she doesn't see those as being the real danger to the world. Um, She sees the real danger as the more we have larger and larger numbers of people who are stateless, who are part of, you know, no nation really, they're just cast to Rome, uh, the more that you have a larger and larger percentage of the world that is thrown back into savagery. And the larger that population becomes, the more it's likely to bring down everything with it. <clears throat> so you can see, as you're looking at you know her political philosophy, this is her political theory. I'll give her, I'll, I'll give her the name that she wants because, like I said, she didn't want to be considered a philosopher. She wanted to be considered a political theorist. If you look at it, you can see that she really does have real-world application, real-world consequences in mind when she's looking at these ideas. You know, it's one thing to look at ideas through the prism of, you know, pie in the sky, this is perfect, this is wonderful the way it is, which is sadly sometimes what many philosophers and uh, even many political figures have done. Uh, And it's a very different thing to look at it and say, okay, what is this grounded on? How is this actually playing out in everyday life? How is this actually playing out in the world? And I think Aaron um, is a philosopher theorist who is very underappreciated, and I feel that the you know the farther we travel in history, uh, the more people are going to realize that her ideas were far more relevant than people uh, gave her credit for. And I think a lot of people, you know, wanted to just kind of sweep it under the the rug for a couple of different reasons. One, they, you know, didn't want to think that anything like the Holocaust or anything horrible like that could ever happen again. Well, we've proven that it can happen again. We've had massacres since the Holocaust um and they also like i said there's a, there's a lot of it i think that's the good old boys club when it comes to philosophy where they want to focus on mainly male philosophers and the women yeah will will we can throw them into being literary theorists or uh political science or you know but but philosophies for the men and sadly i think the second is probably a very large part of it um and one of the things that through these uh, podcasts that I hope to remedy a little bit is not only bringing, you know, literature and philosophy uh, to everyone who wants to learn about them. I also want to expand them so that people also get a grasp of a lot of the voices who have been silenced or ignored. Because I think if we really want to put together any kind of coherent picture of the world, We can't just do it by picking the ones that said the things we like in the ways we like to hear it. We have to kind of look at it from as many different angles as possible. Okay, I'm going to end this episode here. I hope all of you are doing well, and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.